So during World War II, there was a captain by the name of uh, Terry Simmerall. He was a pilot of a B-29 bomber, which was called the Super Fortress. It is a huge bomber during World War II. On this particular day, they were on a mission. It was called a Pathfinder mission, and their job was to drop a bomb of phosphorus that would mark a target for future bombing raids. So Captain Simmerall flew the plane over the target, then he signaled uh, Sergeant Henry Irwin to trigger the bomb. And he did. As it made its way down the chute, however, it prematurely imploded and, and began to leak. It then flipped itself back into the plane. So now this bomb of phosphorus is leaking out. It's on fire. And if you know anything about phosphorus, when it hits metal, it melts it like butter, which is a problem because underneath the floor of that airplane is where all the bombs are stored. So as soon as that leaks into that area, that whole plane's going to explode. Well, during the blast, he was blinded by the phosphorus and the smoke so he couldn't see. It had taken off one of his ears, so he was in excruciating pain. But he had to act fast or everybody was going to die. So he picks up the bomb, smoking hot with his bare hands, and he goes towards the cockpit. Now, the super fortress had a big glass dome over the cockpit. And what happened is the smoke began to fill that area, as you would expect. Well, Captain Simmerall, who was right next to the window, opened it up to release the smoke. Well, Dr. Henry Irwin knew that that was his only way, so he takes the bomb and throws it out the window to save everyone on board and then collapses right there on the deck. Well, he goes on to survive. He regained most of the sight in one eye. He was able to regain the use of his hands. And as you might expect, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his heroic courage, saving the lives of every one of those members of that mission on that plane. I think we all hear stories like that, and we're amazed, as we should be, with such bravery. But, but I also believe that there are all kinds of stories that happen in everyday life of unknown heroes. In fact, as we look at our passage this morning, I believe we see evidence of heroes in our passage. what I call heroic faith. And in fact, not only in our passage, but there are examples of heroic faith happening every day all around us. There are examples right here in this room this morning. So before we look at our passage this morning, let me begin our time in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for just the ability to come and to worship, to give praise and glory to your name. And Lord, we could do this all day because we would never reach the end of all the things that we could celebrate about your goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness that is showered upon us. I pray, Lord, that we continue that same heart of gratitude and worship even as we open up your word would you use that word to impact our lives would you soften our heart would you lead us towards a life-giving relationship with you and pray that we are able to understand that more clearly through our time in your word this morning we pray this in your name amen so if you would turn to acts chapter 13 and we'll pick up there in verse 43 where we left off last week. So if you would, read with me beginning in verse 43 of chapter 13. 
says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking to them and were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Now, this is an impressive statement in and of itself because Pisidian Antioch was no small city. In fact, it was a pretty major city, city there in the area of Galatia. Much like Caesarea, if you'll remember when we talked about Caesarea, uh, Pisidian Antioch was also a Roman colony. It was a place of a, of a military fortress. It's where many important government officials lived. And so this was no small comment about what's happening here. Because apparently the, the news of Paul and Barnabas and the things that they were teaching became the talk of this very significant town. So much so that it's as if the city shut down. Because everyone wanted to go hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. Notice in verse 43, as all this attention was growing in their message, it says that they kept urging the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes to continue in the grace of God. Now, just as a reminder, the proselytes are, are Gentiles who accepted the Jewish faith. They accepted the, the practice and the belief system of the Jews. So Paul is telling those who are looking to God to continue in the grace of God. And let me kind of give you a little illustration of what I think part of that means. To understand it, I want you to think of an umbrella, which thankfully we've had recently, so it's not too difficult to imagine the protection that we get under an umbrella when it's raining. And I want us to think of that umbrella as an umbrella of grace. Now, if we put ourselves in the minds of the typical Jew during this time, they would say that Moses is the one who holds the umbrella of grace. Because Moses is the one who gave out the law. And they felt like there was protection in the law. That as long as they followed the law, then they were covered by grace. Which is true to an extent, but what they forgot to understand or what they didn't fully appreciate is that the law was never intended to remove sin. We talked about that last week, right? The, the law was there to help us recognize sin, to, to show that we fall short so that we would ultimately turn to God as the place of our forgiveness and grace because of His love and mercy. But God had promised a, a future provision for the forgiveness of sin. And we know that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus came, you remember he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so now, instead of depending on this rule of law, following all these uh, commandments that were necessary that no one could ever complete, Jesus now holds the umbrella of grace. And he says, if you put your faith in me, then you are protected. That's where you find forgiveness. And so instead of this rule of law, you now have this rule of faith and there is protection under the umbrella of grace when you put your faith and trust in Christ. So when Paul and Barnabas are encouraging them to continue in grace, he's encouraging them to transfer their allegiance from this rule of law, which can never provide forgiveness, to the rule of faith where you find forgiveness through grace in Christ alone. Continue in the grace of God. 
finding forgiveness of sin under that umbrella of protection. Look at how it continues in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. There was so much interest in the city to what Paul and Barnabas had to say that it says the Jews became jealous. The Jews, who were so eager to learn all the things that they were having to say, now all of a sudden didn't want to share They didn't want others to be introduced to a truth that they believed belonged to them. After all, they've been set apart. They're a chosen people, a holy nation. They didn't want to include others from outside that community of faith. But Ephesians tells us that Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. It says that he made the two groups into one so that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. But we are all one in Jesus Christ. But that was not a message that the Jews were willing to accept. That's why they were jealous. It says in verse 45 that they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. We've been talking about, we know that Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So in order to contradict what Paul has been saying, the Jews are saying, no, he's not. And if Jesus is the promised Messiah, and they're saying he's not, that's blasphemy. Because you're calling God a liar. So Paul and Barnabas boldly stand their ground. They remind the Jews, yes, yes, you are God's chosen people, which is precisely why we came to you first. And because you have been given the promises of God, you, in fact, of all people, should know how Jesus has fulfilled them. But instead of embracing the truth, they push it away. That word repudiate in verse 46 literally means to stiff arm, to push away with force. And by rejecting Jesus as their Savior, they, it says, prove themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. I want to pause here because I want you to understand something very clearly. We are all unworthy of eternal life. You get that? We are all unworthy of eternal life. We are only made worthy Because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are made worthy. Even though we are completely unworthy. Eternal life is a gift of grace. For those who believe. And apart from Christ, we are unworthy of eternal life. Look at verse 47. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And many who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole 
region. Paul and Barnabas are are reminding the Jews, hey, look, you, you were set apart to be a light to the nation, not to keep people out, but to invite them in and to experience what God intends for the world to know. Which is why the Gentiles rejoiced when they heard this message because it was not what they were hearing from the Jews. They rejoiced in God's word because it told a different story. It was a story of forgiveness. It was a story of grace through faith in Christ alone. Not a rule of law, but a rule of faith. I know some of you, like myself, grew up in some traditions that taught you that your salvation is based on following the rules. (laughs) That you grew up in a religious system, as long as you checked all the boxes, you were in good shape from God's perspective. That is not true. We are all unworthy. We are only made worthy through faith in Christ alone. It's not a rule of law. It's a rule of faith. It says in verse 48, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed this is an important verse because here we see the inseparable reality of divine sovereignty and human responsibility you can't separate them divine sovereignty says that god moves first he has to make a way he has to reveal a path in which we can have eternal life through the person and work of jesus christ that is a work of god And we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless he moves first, we can't make ourselves alive. But on the other hand, there is human responsibility. Because as God's Spirit moves in the hearts of people, as that truth is being revealed, there is a response of belief. It says they believed. God moves first, but then there is a response of faith. And as a result, in verse 49, it says, the good news of God was spreading through the whole region. I think it's interesting that word appoint literally means to arrange or to set things in order. And so God had set things in order through the person and work of Jesus Christ so that when that message of truth came into their hearts, then they could believe and be saved through faith and grace alone. Look at how he continues in verse 50. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. If you follow the history of the Jews within the New Testament in particular, you're going to see a pattern. You're going to see a pattern that they're going to call on people of influence when they can't seem to get the job done on their own. They're all about autonomy in this closed community until they need some help from the outside. They subscribe to that philosophy that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's why they enlisted the help of Pontius Pilate in order to crucify Jesus. That's why they enlisted the help of Herod in order to get rid of James. When it says they shook off the dust of their feet, what they're doing is exactly what Jesus told them to do. If you look at 
Luke chapter 9. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. This is Jesus' words in chapter 9, verse 5. He says this, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. It's a visible sign of spiritual judgment. They're, They're leaving that defilement of unbelief behind. And they're judging their rejection. They're, you see, Paul and Barnabas are only doing what God called them to do. Proclaim the message of God's word to the people. They can't make the people believe. And so they don't carry that responsibility with them as they go to the next city. And I want you to notice that it's persecution once again that is causing the spread of the gospel. And the reason that the word of God keeps going from one city to the next is because the disciples keep getting run out of town And they take the gospel with them. And when they go into this new place, they share the good news with a new group of people. Look at what happens in verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to know when I read this passage, this verse stopped me in my tracks. (laughs) Because it really seemed to be out of context. Here we have Paul and Barnabas who are rejected by their own people. They're called liars. They're called false teachers. There's a persecution that rises up and it actually runs them out of town. And then yet it says in verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Instead of being discouraged by those who rejected, they found joy in those who believed. Instead of complaining about all the difficulty, they found joy in having been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They found joy in God's protection. They found joy in new opportunities to share God's truth. Even in the midst of persecution, they found joy in God's presence. Because I want you to notice in verse 52, their joy is tied to the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. I believe that apart from the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas are not full of joy. They're overwhelmed. They are discouraged. They want to quit. But because of the presence of God at work in their life, they have love in the midst of hatred. They have joy in the midst of struggle. They have peace in the midst of pain. And here's the key. The goodness of God's presence overrules the difficulty of our circumstances. Do you hear that? Because we're going to find ourselves in difficult circumstances in this life time and time again. And we have to believe in that truth, that the joy of God's presence overrules any circumstances of difficulty that we might find ourselves in. It's the only way that we can be filled with joy is when we are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's presence at work in our lives. Finding joy in in God's approval, not in the rejection of other people. Finding joy in His delight, resting in His provision, trusting in His promises. And across an article this week from John Piper that was for people in ministry, and rightly so, it said, if you find yourself in a place of discouragement in the midst of ministry, then take ten minutes And consider ten ways that you can see the evidence of God at work around you. (laughs) Take ten minutes to look for ten things 
10 places where God is at work around you. And the reason that's really important is because how we perceive our circumstances in the moment dramatically influences what we expect to happen in the future. And if we get drugged down into the depths of despair, we lose the ability to see through that to any hopeful expectation of things yet to come. Seeing God at work now gives an anticipation of God's continued work in the future. I want you to see how that plays out. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. It came about in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who didn't believe stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So despite the opposition in Pisidia, they go right back to the synagogue in Iconium. They did. They shook shook off the the dust of their feet, but they did not let that past rejection influence their future ministry. And so, as a result, a great many believed, both Jews and Gentiles. Yet again, we see these unbelieving Jews stirring up the minds of the Gentiles. They are embittering them, as you'll notice, against the brethren. So they are embittering the minds of the Gentiles against those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. They're joining forces with the enemy to oppose the people who believe in Jesus. And notice, they didn't just oppose the message. They disparage the people. Maybe they labeled them as a threat to society, as ones who were disturbing things because they were forsaking old traditions and they were causing disturbances in families and within communities. The Jews were criticizing the Christians in an effort to discredit the gospel. Look at what happens in verse 3. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness of the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Because they were able to, in the midst of past discouragement, anticipate future provision, they didn't let that hold them down, but in fact it made them increasingly bold. But I want you to notice they're speaking boldly. Why? Look, with reliance on the Lord. They weren't bold because of their own strength. They they weren't bold because of their eloquent words. They weren't bold because they had the trust in their pervasive uh, uh, pervasive speech. Or um, that's not the word I'm thinking of. What's the word? Persuasive. Thank you. The point is that they weren't depending on themselves. It tells us that their reliance was on the Lord. Obviously, I am too. Right. Notice, it was the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of His grace. It was the Lord who was granting signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas were bold, that's true, but only because of the faithfulness of God. That's where they put their trust. Seeing the evidence of God's goodness, even in the midst of disappointment, is what helps them anticipate God's continued provision, believing that He is faithful. Look at verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. 
Now, if you picked up on the progression, you can go back to chapter 13 and verse 45 and see that it started with jealousy. And then in verse 50, it progressed to persecution. And now here in verse 5, we see a threat of murder. This is mob violence. Okay? What's happening here is a large group of people with stones in their hand, physically intimidating, verbally harassing. But why? If you Stop and think about that for a minute. Mob violence. But why? What is so offensive? about the message of grace and forgiveness through faith in Christ alone. I think the gospel is offensive because it goes against our selfish independence. It requires us to confess our sins, to admit that in fact we fall short, to trust in God more than we trust ourselves. The fact of the matter is we instinctively oppose any message that calls us to surrender. But in fact, that is the message that is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. He also promises, though, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The bottom line is that we've got to trust in God more than we trust ourselves. God opposes the proud. But it gives grace to the humble. Look at how it continues in verse 6. They became aware of it. They being Paul and Barnabas. And they fled to the cities of Laconia, Lystra, and Derbe. And the surrounding region. And they continued to preach the gospel. Once again the persecution pushes the gospel into new places. Yes, they were run out of town once again, but they took the message of the gospel with them. See, these are men of heroic faith. They persevere even in the midst of persecution. But I believe that there are examples of heroic faith that happen around us every day, including examples in the room this morning. I know for a fact that there are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ despite opposition from family and friends. People who are close to you who criticized your beliefs, saying that you only trust in Christ because you need a crutch. You're just another one of those religious fanatics. It's a phase. It'll pass in time. But you have boldly stood your ground. You have humbly accepted the Word of God and faithfully obeyed Him. You, my friend, have heroic faith. There are some in the church who have chosen to be a foster family. Not once, but over and over again. You have willingly invited interruption into your comfortable life in order to care for the needs of someone else is more important than your own. There are many in our church who have adopted. You've allowed God to design your family according to His own desires. You have put your trust in Him. And listen to me. You have heroic faith. Since this is Mother's Day, it probably goes without saying, moms, you too are examples of heroic faith. You, as I can see with my own eyes in my own home, you do the work of ten men on the average day. You love the unlovable. You clean the messy. You cherish. You nurture. You forgive. You have heroic faith. 
I know we also have single parents in our church, and I've often said before, I don't know how you do it. But then I read a passage like this, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. You do what Paul and Barnabas do. You are relying on the Lord, believing that he is faithful, trusting in his provision. And as you do, you demonstrate for the world to see, including the people in this room, you have heroic faith. I know there are some here this morning who are single by choice. There are some who have been widowed. There are some who have been in divorces. And in a world that defines us many times by the relationship you're in, you have chosen instead to be defined by, to find your identity in who you are in Christ, in that relationship. When you do that in the world in which we live, you have heroic faith. Some are battling chronic illness. Some in this room this morning are battling terminal illness. But you don't put your hope in this world. You put your hope in Christ. You have heroic faith. Do you get my point? There are examples of heroic faith all around us every day. But there's one more that I don't want us to overlook because I think it's really important for our church in particular. There are some of you who have heroic faith because you're willing to admit your struggles. You're vulnerable about where God is at work in your life. You're brave enough to share your story even if it's messy. And I want you to know it's people like you who make this church a safe place for those who are in a hard place. Just think about that for a minute. How uncomfortable would it be for someone who's struggling with something in their life to walk into a place where everybody's got it figured out, nobody's got any problems, nobody's struggling, nobody can relate to what you're going through. I would never want to return to that place again if I myself was struggling. And because I am, I find great comfort and safety in a people who are willing to admit, yeah, so am I. There are places in my life where I need God's amazing grace every single day. Every hour, Lord, I need you. We can say that and mean it. Linda, I want you to know that you had heroic faith when you shared your story on Easter Sunday. And here's something I know to be true, that there were people here that morning who needed to hear your testimony, who were in a hard place experiencing something much like you've gone through, and you gave them hope. You have heroic faith. In fact, all you ladies, you mentioned it, Megan, this morning, who are a part of the brown bag lunch, and you're willing to get up in front of women, some of which you've never met in your life, and you're willing to tell your story and be vulnerable among other women, you have heroic faith. If this church is going to be a hospital for the hero, or for the hurting, we need more heroes, more people who are willing to share their story. We began this morning by talking about uh, Sergeant Irwin, who was that hero in the midst of that plane in World War II. And we would all admit he was brave and courageous in what he did. But I want you to know, so are many of you. There are examples of heroic faith that fill this room. Because you trust in Christ, you rely on Him, and you believe in His faithful provision. That's heroic faith. In a world that says you're silly... <laughs> that you're just doing it because you need a crutch, that you're not strong enough to stand on your own, and you're willing to say, you're right. And so I'm going to stand with Christ.
He is my hope. He is my life. As we sang this morning, that's our living hope. It's alive and well. You have heroic faith. So as we finish up this morning, I, I want you on this last song, instead of standing, I want you to stay seated. We sang it during the offertory, and I want you to watch and listen to the words, sing them as you know them, but really make this a prayer for where God is at work through His Spirit in our lives today. Can we do that?